From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving on the week in politics. Also, lawsuits over ghost guns, firearms that can't be traced, built from kits. President Biden puts his name on his economic policies. Will an idea that seems appealing now look so shiny in a year? And we hear about a new choir piece from Ted Hearn and The Crossing. This music is twitchy, it's elusive, it's synthetic and surrealistic. It delivers what I really can only describe as a total sensory overload. And the lyrics are taken from the words of Jeff Bezos, William Penn, and Uber Eats. Your order is on the way, but first our newscast at Saturday, July 8, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is on a four-day visit to China to improve relations between the world's two largest economies. Today, she said the U.S. and China must compete fairly and communicate closely to avoid misunderstandings. The United States and China should seek a relationship of healthy economic competition that is not winner-take-all, but with a fair set of rules would benefit both our countries over time. Yellen also called for greater cooperation to address climate change. She said the world's two largest emitters of greenhouse gases have a joint responsibility to lead the way. Turkey's president says Ukraine deserves to be a member of NATO. His comment came after a late-night meeting with his Ukrainian counterpart. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan hosted Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky, who thanked Erdogan for supporting Ukraine's territorial integrity. For his part, Erdogan, heard here through an interpreter, told reporters that Ukraine should join the NATO military alliance. It is going to be our most sincere desire for parties to go back to peace talks. We will be giving all the support we can to make sure Ukraine is restored. Erdogan also restated his call for another extension of the Black Sea grain deal, which is due to expire this month. Russia has complained that the deal isn't allowing certain Russian products to reach markets. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Erdogan's support for Ukraine to join NATO comes at a time when Turkey is holding up membership for Sweden, saying Sweden has not done enough to crack down on Kurdish militants demanding a separate homeland in Turkey. The installation of the newest barrier on the southern border is underway. Hundreds of buoys have arrived in Eagle Pass and will soon be deployed into the Rio Grande. But the barrier could violate treaties with Mexico. Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies reports. Five tractor trailers loaded with the four-foot diameter buoy balls arrived Friday in Eagle Pass. When assembled, they will make a thousand-foot-long obstacle for migrants crossing the Rio Grande. Governor Greg Abbott says that's just the beginning. Where we can put mile after mile after mile of these buoys. But the barriers may not float with the International Boundary and Water Commission. Stephen Mummy is an expert on water and border policy. What Abbott is doing is conducting an irresponsible experiment at the expense of federal and international law. Mummy says the buoys would illegally alter the flow of the river, which would change the boundary between the United States and Mexico. I'm David Martin Davies in Eagle Pass, Texas. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Maura Healey is withholding access to several documents about her administration's move to preserve abortion drug access in Massachusetts. In April, Healy arranged a shipment of mifepristone with UMass Amherst when a federal judge tried to suspend access to the drug. Healy also released an executive order to keep the drug legal in the state. The Statehouse News Service made a public record request regarding the relevant communications, and the documents released by the Healy administration in response did not share details on how the state was able to quickly draft the order and secure the stockpile. Her administration previously pledged more transparency on public records than past governors. Boston City Councilor Ed Flynn is calling for an employee parking procedure review at City Hall. The Boston Herald reports that Flynn outlined his request in a letter to the Boston Property Management Department. The move comes after City Councilor Kendra Lara crashed her car into a Jamaica Plain home. She allegedly was driving with a suspended license. Flynn wants the city to verify driver's licenses, registrations, and insurance policies for employees' cars parked in the garages near City Hall. It is nesting and hatching season for loons. Two loon chicks are expected to hatch on a Lakes Region live stream in the next day or two in New Hampshire. The Loon Preservation Committee's live loon cam follows nesting loons in New Hampshire each year. Biologist Caroline Hughes from the organization says the first thing people will see during a hatch is a pip on the egg or a small speck where the chick is starting to peck its way out. Usually after we see the pip, it takes about 12 hours, um, but it can be up to 18 hours before the chick is fully hatched and on the nest with the parent. So we may see it, uh, you know, receive its first meal from its parent. It'll take its first swim. She says the loon cam is a chance to see the process up close without disturbing the birds, which are protected species in New Hampshire. Partly sunny in Boston today with highs in the mid-80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for joining us. The Biden administration will provide Ukraine with cluster bombs, a weapon that's banned by more than 120 other countries, including many U.S. allies, and decried by human rights groups for the damage they can cause civilians. Cluster bombs consist of dozens of small bomblets that scatter over a big area and can cause widespread collateral damage, including when they don't explode until days or weeks later when a child walks by and innocently picks up a small object to play. NPR's Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Let me play for you what uh, Colin Cole, the uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, said at a briefing yesterday. I'm as concerned about the humanitarian circumstance as anybody. But the worst thing for civilians in Ukraine is for Russia to win the war. And so it's important that they don't. I I must say, Ron, I've seen cluster bombs at work uh, in several wars around the world. They are ugly, destructive and indiscriminate. Is the administration essentially saying, yeah, yes, but this is a necessary evil? That's not the language they would use, but it seems to be very much the concept here. 
They're saying the overarching need to save Ukraine justifies whatever means we choose to find necessary. So Ukraine doesn't have enough artillery, plus they need more ammunition for the artillery they do have. The U.S. cannot supply that fast enough. But hey, there are these surplus cluster bombs sitting in inventory. So the hope is that Ukraine will work hard to minimize civilian casualties. After all, they'd be Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. And there is also a promise to stay engaged long enough to eliminate the unexploded munitions down the road. So we'll see how this plays out at next week's NATO meeting, because many NATO countries respect the international ban on these munitions. And National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has already said NATO won't vote on whether to admit Ukraine at those talks. But the questions about the alliance and the war are going to be at the heart of their deliberations, won't they? Yes, of course. It's the elephant in the room. It's long been seen as a key Putin goal in this war to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO as an independent country, adding one more adversary on Russia's borders. Of course, what's happened instead is that NATO has expanded, including Finland, with mm -hmm. 800 miles of border with Russia. At the same time, there are warning voices in the U.S., warning of the consequences of pushing Putin too far. Some have even blamed the West for provoking Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine in the first place. Among those voices, uh, on the left, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running as a Democrat for president. Um, recent poll showed him at 17 percent among Democrats last month. What will happen if Mr. Kennedy does well in New Hampshire next year? Uh, even if New Hampshire delegates don't qualify for the convention? Uh, the Democratic National Committee has decided the first primary that counts will be in South Carolina next year, the idea being to de-emphasize the largely white and rural states of Iowa and New Hampshire that have been the kickoff states for the whole process for so long. So New Hampshire will be having what we call a beauty contest for Democrats, even while Republicans on the same day are choosing real delegates. Nonetheless, we have seen New Hampshire damage the re-election campaigns of presidents in the past, Lyndon Johnson in 1968, uh, then the first President Bush in 1992. Uh, those were psychological setbacks where the challenger didn't win, but did better than expected. So the RFK Jr. challenge, still far from being in that weight class at this point, and apart from his famous name, he serves as a kind of all-purpose protest candidate. Ron, what do you make of Governor Ron DeSantis uh, accusing, if that's the word, former President Trump as being a staunch advocate for LGBTQ plus rights? It's a one-minute ad with a clip of Trump saying he would protect the rights of LGBTQ citizens and a clip of him saying Caitlyn Jenner can use any bathroom she wants at Trump Tower. Uh, the bottom line is DeSantis is saying Trump is not a true culture warrior like Ron DeSantis. DeSantis continues to campaign as though the way to beat Trump is to run to his right. This ad may not be a sign of desperation, but it's hard to see how it really helps. Ron Elvin, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Once again this year, the 4th of July holiday was marked by a series of mass shootings around the country. A rampage in Philadelphia on Monday night killed five people. The alleged shooter was arrested on the scene in Philadelphia police were troubled by the nature of his two guns. Here's Deputy Commissioner of Investigations, Frank Venor. We've confirmed through our lab both of those weapons were privately made firearms. They don't have any markings, they're not traceable. So if he would have dropped that weapon and got away, we had no way to trace that weapon back to him. In other words, they were what's sometimes called ghost guns. A phenomenon that's grown so fast, Philadelphia is now suing. Joining us now to explain the lawsuit and 
legal status of these do-it-yourself guns is NPR's Martin Costi. Martin, thanks for being with us. Hi, Scott. First, I, I want to try and understand the lawsuits, because if these are ghost guns, who does the city sue? Well, there are two kinds of ghost guns. Uh, there are those that are um, made truly at home, truly homemade with, say, a uh, 3D printer or something like that. Um, that's not what Philadelphia is focusing on, though. Uh, they're suing over the much bigger category, which is these companies that sell you the metal machined parts for a gun, but technically not quite a gun, uh, under federal rules at least. And basically what this is is a kit. Um, this week, Philadelphia sued two companies that sell the kits, JSD Supply and Polymer 80. The city accuses those two companies of selling these almost guns to Philadelphians in violation of state law. And they also say this kind of sale has fueled violence and cost the city a lot of money. Any idea how many of these guns might be out there? Well, it's hard to know the number in circulation by the very nature of these guns. Uh, the manufacturers consider them unregulated parts, so there's no serial numbers. Uh, buyers don't have to do background checks. The, so the things we usually use to count guns just don't happen. But the police do count them when they come to them from crime scenes, and that count is increasing. The ATF says the number of privately made firearms used in crimes jumped to about 20,000 two years ago. And you see that kind of jump in Philly, too, where it went from almost nothing to nearly 10% of all the guns from crimes last year, which are now privately made firearms. The city announced this lawsuit on Wednesday. Was that because of the two ghost guns they recovered at Monday shooting? No, the city was already preparing this suit uh, uh, before that happened with the help of the Giffords Law Center, the gun control group. And Philadelphia is just really the latest in uh, a series of Democratic-run jurisdictions that have tried this. We've seen similar lawsuits in New York, New Jersey, California. Uh, some of those lawsuits are pending. In other cases, they have gotten the manufacturers to agree to stop selling the kits in those places. They've even paid out some money. Martin, in addition to these lawsuits from cities and states, is there something going on at the federal level? So the Biden administration has made it a priority to clamp down on these gun kits. Uh, they did that by having the ATF broaden some of the technical definitions of which parts qualify as a firearm for purposes of having to have a serial number and requiring a background check for a purchase, that kind of thing. But as you might imagine, that was instantly challenged in court by gun rights groups. Um, I talked to Adam Kraut. He's the executive director of the Second Amendment Foundation. Uh, they're involved in a lawsuit in federal court in Texas. The right to self-manufacture arms is something that, you know, there is no historical basis either in uh, law or tradition to restrict people from doing. And he says the administration overstepped its bounds by rewriting the definition of what a gun is. He says that should be left to Congress. A federal court in Texas has uh, agreed so far. It just vacated those new definitions. And for now, people who track this kind of thing say these gun kits are still being widely sold across the country. And Pierce Martin Costi, thanks so much. You're welcome. This is how Colonel General Andrei Kartopolov described the recent Iskander missile strike on the Ria Pizza restaurant in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. The strike on Kramatorsk was a real beauty, the Colonel General told Russian state television about the rocket attack that killed 13 people and wounded at least 60. I bow my head to those who planned it, he continued, not a blow, but a song. My old military heart rejoices. The writer Victoria Amelino was in the restaurant when the missile hit. She died from her injuries a few days later. Victoria Amelino was a novelist, but since Russia's invasion last year, she'd mostly written poetry. That's what war leaves you, she told the website of the Goethe Institute. 
The sentences are as short as possible, the punctuation, a redundant luxury, the plot unclear, but every word carries so much meaning. All this applies to poetry as well as to war. Victoria Amelina had been working with the human rights group Truth Hounds to document war crimes and preserve the works of Ukrainian artists who might lose their lives while the books, plays, and paintings into which they poured their hearts and ours are blown up and burned. She wrote for the Penn Ukraine website, Now there is a real threat that Russians will successfully execute another generation of Ukrainian culture, this time by missiles and bombs. This is from her poem about a crow, translated by William Blacker. In a barren springtime field stands a woman dressed in black, crying her sister's names like a bird in the empty sky. She'll cry them all out of herself. One that flew away too soon, the one that had begged to die, the one that couldn't stop death, the one that has not stopped waiting. The one that has not stopped believing, the one that still grieves in silence, she'll cry them all into the ground as though sowing the field with pain. And from pain in the names of women, her new sisters will grow from the earth and again will sing joyfully of life. But what about her, the crow? She will stay in this field forever because only this cry of hers holds all those swallows in the air. Do you hear how she calls, each one by her name? About a crow, the name of the writer is Victoria Amelina. She died after a Russian missile strike in Ukraine. She was 37 years old. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8.18, and coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story on major delays for passport renewals this summer. At the beach or at the park on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever the summer takes you. Download the WBUR app today. It is 74 degrees in Boston with partly sunny skies and highs today in the mid-80s. A low around 70 overnight, a mostly cloudy Sunday. Tomorrow's high about 80 degrees. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village. Now playing Tony Award-winning musical Jersey Boys, the story of Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. and China must work together to fight climate change. During a four-day visit to Beijing, she said the world's two largest emitters of greenhouse gases have a joint responsibility to lead the way. The Dutch government collapsed yesterday after members were unable to agree on how to restrict immigration. It will stay on as a caretaker government until new elections can be held. And California Governor Gavin Newsom says he will no longer oppose parole for Leslie Van Houten. She has served 53 years for brutal murders committed by the Charles Manson cult. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. President Biden and his advisors have fanned out across the country over the last few weeks to herald his economics record. They've got a new slogan for those achievements, Bidenomics. Here's the president last month in Chicago. I came into office determined to change the economic direction of this country, to move from trickle-down economics to what everyone on Wall Street Journal and Financial Times began to call Bidenomics. I didn't come up with the name. I really didn't. I now claim it, but they're the ones who use the first. So, not Reaganomics, which was trickle-down, but Bidenomics. NPR's Eric McDaniel joins us in our studios. Eric, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. Seems like anytime anyone from the administration's in front of a microphone, they work in the phrase Bidenomics. What, what, what is it? Well, first and foremost, and probably even mostly, Scott, it's a campaign message. Biden's out making the case that the economy is strong and that he's the one to thank for that. Inflation continues to fall. We've emerged from the pandemic. Unemployment is near historic lows. But Bidenomics is also a sort of bumper sticker way for the administration to talk about all of the president's economic legislation at once. So that's the Trillion Dollar Inflation Reduction Act, which invested in climate jobs and American manufacturing. It's also the Bipartisan Infrastructure Plan, which, as you might guess, invests in infrastructure, roads, bridges, Internet, and the CHIPS Act, which is about incentivizing domestic semiconductor manufacturing. So rather than tick through all of that, like I just did, it's much quicker and maybe more accessible to say Bidenomics. Any sign it's catching on as a phrase? Well, admittedly, I haven't heard it on TikTok yet, but the administration really is pushing the term. And I actually do think there's some risk here to the president. In a lot of ways, the economy is quite strong. The U.S. has had what might be the world's most robust recovery from COVID. But people tell us they still don't feel great about the economy. And in polls, we've heard that folks tend to trust Republicans more to handle the business of running the economy. I talked to Simon Rosenberg about all of this. He's a Democratic strategist who's worked for the Democratic National Committee and plenty of other places. He told me he thinks that a lot of that wariness is more about a kind of hangover from COVID than it is about the economy itself. I think COVID was remarkably disruptive in people's lives. People don't feel necessarily secure that we're on the other side of it. It was a massive disruption to everyday life here for a long time. It was a major event in the life of the country. And I think there's some evidence that People are still feeling weary and tired and worried about things. And look, Rosenberg also told me that he thinks the president has a strong case to make that the economy is good and that it's the president's job to get out on the road and spread the good news to help people end an era of bad feelings. But Eric, we're still a long ways out from Election Day. Uh, Plenty of time for things to change. By putting his name on the economy, does President Biden risk being blamed if problems develop closer to the 2024 election? Right. So the president could embrace this Bidenomics label and anything could happen. There could be a real recession. We got some new jobs numbers. The U.S. economy kept adding jobs, but fewer than expected. And the Federal Reserve is probably going to have to raise interest rates again. That's going to make it more expensive to borrow money for houses and cars and could slow hiring. 
And there's also just straight up political risk. This label could come to mean something less rosy than it does now in the eyes of the Biden administration. Republican presidential hopefuls like Tim Scott are already out using the term Bidenomics to attack President Biden, saying that people still think prices are too high on the things they need to buy. And that's Bidenomics. But, you know, like you said, we're still more than a year out from when folks start casting ballots. And we just don't know what the economic news will look like by then. But Bidenomics is the president's bet that things will look pretty good. And here's Eric McDaniel. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. The National Registry says Native Americans make up less than 1% of the U.S. population, but account for nearly 4% of all missing persons reports. Federal Commission investigating the issue is now concluding hearings it's been holding around the country. Jeanette Didios from member station KUNM in Albuquerque reports on some of the solutions Indigenous people have suggested. Tiffany Reed is one of nearly 200 Native people known to be missing in New Mexico and the Navajo Nation. Her big sister, Deandra, remembers her always adopting stray cats and writing poetry. She did a poetry slam contest in... I want to say Missouri, the last place that she went, um, just right before she went missing. One day in 2004, when she was 16, she left to go to school in Shiprock. That was it. We never seen or heard from her since then. Reed is one of dozens of people who testified at the Not Invisible Commission hearing in Albuquerque, raising long-standing complaints about police response. It's really hard for me to get in contact with anybody, and when I do... They're constantly changing officers, so I've talked to maybe three different officers so far within the last two years. It's, it's really frustrating to me. Policing in Indian country is often a confusing jumble of state, local, tribal, and federal agencies. Again and again at the hearings, people complain those agencies rarely coordinate well in missing persons cases. Amber Crotty, a delegate on the Navajo Nation Council, says families organize their own searches, investigations, and protest marches. The families are tired of walking, they're tired of protesting, they're tired of, of just everything. They just want justice. Patricia Whitefoot, whose sister disappeared decades ago, testified police often seem ill-prepared to deal with Native communities. What kind of education is being done and conducted, particularly with the non-Native officers and, and our own tribal officers as well. What do you know about the history of our, of our people? What do you know about historical and cultural oppression? These hearings are the result of a years-long quest by America's first Indigenous cabinet member, Interior Secretary Deb Holland. Before she was appointed, she represented New Mexico in Congress and got the Not Invisible Act passed. A real solution will never be found without the voices of Indigenous survivors, which is what is so special about this bill. The act requires the U.S. Department of Justice to partner with Interior to coordinate federal law enforcement response to missing Native persons. At the Albuquerque event, U.S. Attorney Alexander Ubaez announced some new help. A new nationwide program to support the effort to locate missing and murdered Indigenous people to seek proactive strategies to prevent future murders. Justice is assigning 39 assistant U.S. attorneys to offices in nine states to provide specialized support for missing and murdered Native cases. Justice has also promised to address crimes it says underlie missing persons reports, like domestic and sexual violence and trafficking humans and drugs. 
Selena Montoya Garcia from the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women traces some problems to decades of the federal government displacing Native people from their homelands and forcing kids into abusive boarding schools. Like the trickling effects of all of that has also come down to our people who have learned violence. Other violence comes from outside like camps where largely male workers live while working coal mines or oil wells on native lands. These camps are causing an increased rate in sex trafficking, sexual assault, domestic violence, the like there's more like drugs, substance use happening. The commission will meet in Billings, Montana this month and then for a virtual session later in the summer. In the fall, it is due to make recommendations aiming to stop disappearances like Tiffany Reed's. I don't think I'll ever give up until I do find her or find out what happened to her. I just want to bring her home one way or another, you know, good or bad. For NPR News, I'm Jeanette Didios in Albuquerque. The 1996 film The Watermelon Woman is coming to the Criterion Collection, a series of critically acclaimed movies that can be streamed online. Allison McCabe reports that the feature by Cheryl Dunier broke new ground in several ways. In film school, Cheryl Dunier didn't see people on screen who looked like her, so she decided to do something about it. The Watermelon Woman is the first feature film written and directed by a black lesbian. In it, Dunier plays a fictionalized version of her 25-year-old self. I get movies from the video store that I work at, and I've taken all these films out from the 30s and 40s with black actresses in them, like um, Hattie McDaniel and Louise Beavers. And in some of the films, the black actresses aren't even listed in the credits. Cheryl sets out to make a documentary about an actress typecast as a mammy in the movie Plantation Memories and credited only as the watermelon woman. In real life, Dunier says records of black actresses of that era were hard to come by. You had to go to the library. You had to know where in the library to get information. And it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to find this one book. You have to know where all the related topics are. You have to know how to look at a book next to the book. And still come up empty-handed. In the film, Cheryl reconstructs the actress's story through interviews, home movies, and photos. This one is stamped Newark Studios, and on the back it says, The Watermelon Woman and Sandra Vincent in Jersey Girl, 1931. Cheryl tells us her name is Faye Richards, and she had a fraught relationship with the white female director of Plantation Memories before finding lasting love with a black woman named June. At the end, a title card reveals that The Watermelon Woman is a fiction invented to tell a true story about the invisibility and erasure of black lesbian lives. And most importantly, what I understand is that I'm going to be the one who says, I am a black lesbian filmmaker who's just beginning. Dunier's film reflected both history and possibility, says filmmaker and historian Yvonne Welbin. There's so many ways that we are seeing black women. We're seeing this black woman as a filmmaker, and we know the film is made by a black woman who is searching for a Black woman in film on the other side of the camera. It just really drives home the point that sometimes we have to take it upon ourselves to tell our own stories. But Welbin points out that only about 10% of directors are women. So then you drill down to our, our other identities around race and around our orientation. She'll put herself in the film so that filmmakers could see what a Black queer media maker looked like. 
And in seeing her, it made it possible for other people to believe that they could be just like her. Newsday called Junye the lesbian Spike Lee. But the culture wars were raging, and in 1997, Michigan Congressman Pete Hoekstra derided the film as possibly pornographic. During a House debate on appropriations, he decried that it had been funded through an NEA grant that made up roughly a tenth of a shoestring budget. Describing this as, as art is using the term very, very loosely. I wouldn't show it to my parents. I wouldn't show it to my wife. I wouldn't want my kids to see it. And I don't think I, any of my friends would want to see it. Uh, and we paid for it. Most of Dunier's subsequent films, including nearly a half dozen features, were made outside of Hollywood's studio system. But The Watermelon Woman often screened at festivals and colleges, leading to its 20th anniversary restoration and re-release. Columbia University film professor Raquel J. Gates says its staying power is a testament to Dunier's voice and vision. She's talking about issues of lesbian identity, but she's also thinking through the politics of race and interracial relationships and friendships, generational differences within lesbian communities. And she's also sort of interweaving that with an interesting, like, speculative history of Black representation in Hollywood. As opportunities opened in cable and streaming, Ava DuVernay tapped Dunier to direct episodes of the TV drama Queen Sugar in 2017. Since then, she's worked on scores of shows, including David Makes Man. Series creator Terrell Alvin McRaney says Dunier has expanded how Black LGBTQ stories are told and by whom, building a legacy for future generations. She gave me this shirt that is a replica of Brother to Brother, which is also a seminal documentary about queer Black love particularly. And whenever I'm on a set or if I have a meeting, I just wear that shirt because it just feels like I'm connected to a, something bigger than myself. I'm connected to a community of artists who have my back from, from time immemorial. The Watermelon Woman's addition to the Criterion Collection is more than symbolic, says McCraney, particularly in light of the current political climate. It's making sure that a story is being told and a voice is still being heard and that a thread in the fabric is not being unwoven or cut out. Dunier says her upcoming plans include directing a feature film and TV series based on books by Audre Lorde and Joel Gomez. Citing both as inspirations, she says they carry a message for others, too. Making work is a privilege, uh, a right. Getting that out there is just connecting with people and community. You have to constantly keep putting yourself out where you belong. And there's a loop to it. For NPR News, I'm Allison McCabe. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Planning a summer trip overseas and need a passport? Get in line, and it's a long one. The U.S. State Department says that it's receiving an unprecedented demand for passports, over 400,000 applications each week. Processing times for passports have become longer. Travelers who applied this week face a wait of up to 13 weeks. That would be the last week of September. Clint Henderson is the managing news editor at The Point Sky. He joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Why so long? Well, they're blaming COVID. Basically, during the pandemic, demand plummeted and a lot of the processing went away. And obviously, a lot of workers stayed home, so they weren't processing as many 
passport applications. And then when travel came roaring back and roaring back, it did, uh, they were left with being short staffed and they just didn't have enough people to process all the applications that were coming in. And, and really it's at record levels. So not as quick as they were like everything else in travel as they were before the pandemic. And this applies to new passports and renewals. That's correct. And they had rolled out a online renewal uh, that was working sort of hit or miss, but it had a lot of bugs. The system was crashing and stuff. So they've taken that offline and that's supposed to come back at the end of the year. That should help. And obviously those folks having to get in the line with the folks who need new passports is not helping the situation right now. How is this affecting international travel this summer? Well, a lot of people are waking up realizing they have an expired passport or it's going to take a long time and they're having to scramble to either scrub the trips altogether or try to do an emergency passport situation, which puts further strains on the system. Explain to us the emergency process. So traditionally, say you had a family who was in Italy and someone passed away suddenly mm -hmm. and you didn't have a passport and you needed to go to the funeral. There's a system in place so that you can get an emergency passport in those situations. That system still exists, but it's under strain just like the rest of the system. So what they're requiring now is not only proof that there's been some kind of emergency event like the death of a relative, but you have to show that you're traveling within 72 hours and you now have to get an appointment. You can't just show up at a passport office. You have to get an appointment on the phone. There is also urgent passports within two weeks of travel. And that's really the only time right now that your local congressman is going to be able to get involved because traditionally Congress people's offices have a dedicated staff member just to deal with passport issues. The problem is they're running into the same problem that we all are, which is uh, trouble getting a hold of people. And the State Department is essentially telling even Congress people that they're only going to get involved if the travel is within two weeks. They're really only getting involved in those urgent situations. What could help? Doing the process as early as possible. Uh, the top tips I tell people all the time, though, is pay for the expedited service. It's an extra 60 bucks when you go to get the passport, but talk about being worth every penny. That certainly is it. Also pay for express shipping for your passport. Uh, Two-day shipping around $18 and totally worth it. I will say that we've seen some progress. I've been reporting on this problem for the past year. Mm. It looks like there's some light at the end of the tunnel. I think by the end of the year, they'll have processing times down and they will also have the online renewal Clint Henderson, a travel reporter and the managing news editor at The Points Guy. Thanks so much for being with us and happy travels. Happy travels. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A 13-hour standoff with police ended peacefully late last night in Worcester. A 24-year-old Worcester man surrendered to police. He's suspected of shooting and injuring two family members and then barricading himself in a Worcester home. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is requesting a review of employee parking procedures at City Hall. The Boston Herald reports that Flynn wants the city to verify driver's licenses, registrations, and insurance policies for employees' car parked in the garages near City Hall. Last week, City Councilor Kendra Lara crashed her car into a Jamaica Plain home she allegedly was driving with a revoked driver's license. 
Lions Club members from around the world are marching through Boston's Back Bay this morning. The Parade of Nations gets underway at 9. Participants will be displaying their country's flags and wearing traditional garments. The parade's part of the service organization's convention that runs through Tuesday. At Fenway last night, the Red Sox beat the A's 7-3. to They play again this afternoon. Tonight, the Revs play the Red Bulls in New York. It is 74 degrees in Boston, partly sunny skies today with highs in the mid-80s and a low around 70 overnight. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, Sunday's high around 80 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity. Because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Some people kind of like the pandemic, not illness, worry, and feeling trapped. But having your children close by and everything from bread, radicchio, milk, or oat milk, to toothpicks delivered. People like Pete and Alice. Married New York City couple, Pete is in finance. Alice, a playwright whose career has been delayed by caring for their two children, Sophie and Iris. Their marriage is rocked by Pete's cheating and then COVID. They repair to their second home in Maine to feel safer from COVID, but... They take along all their resentments, challenges, and love. Caitlin Shetterly is the author of the new novel, Pete and Alice in Maine. Her work may be familiar from This American Life. She's also editor-in-chief of Frenchly, the online site for French cultural news, and joins us from Freeport, Maine. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to talk to you. You say in... An author's note that in April 2020, a voice came to you. So we'll cue the spooky music while you tell us what happened. (laughs) My character of Alice came to me in April of 2020. For a little bit there, I'd go out running and I'd see um, Massachusetts and New York and New Jersey license plates in my home state of Maine. And I was born and raised here. And Maine is a poor and aging state. And we don't have many hospital beds. We didn't have enough ventilators. So we were really paying attention to this influx of people whom we perceived to have more privilege than many of us here in Maine have, but who were nonetheless fleeing. What I was interested in, what about their lives prompted them to want to find refuge here in Maine? And then all of a sudden I'm standing at the fridge and this voice came to me And it was undeniably not mine. And the 
entire first page of the book downloaded into my head. And I trundled upstairs in the dark and went into my office and sat down with a pad of paper and just wrote down everything she had said. And then I woke up the next morning and she was in my head telling me the next page. And I thought, oh my God, Alice. So we've all in our house been living with Pete and Alice for quite a bit. You know, you can see someone about that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you can write a novel. And of course, without giving away too much, at the heart of the story is the fact that this is a marriage that is in many ways coming apart. And then Pete and Alice have to go off together with their children. And there's no way of leaving those problems behind in Manhattan. I've always been preoccupied by divorce and marriages that fall apart. And I think the pandemic hastened a real reckoning with that question, honestly. I, I felt like I was aware of friends who were struggling or feeling imprisoned or feeling like I need this over. And in our family, it was actually a time of knitting back together. And that really interested me. That was the thing, like this, this question of, will this marriage make it? And what happens when you're stuck together and it's COVID and you retire to your unwinterized summer house and your marriage is on the rocks? Pete keeps asking Alice for, uh, to forgive him for his affair. Alice is suspicious of what we call forgiveness, isn't she? Yeah, she is. I mean, that was another thing I wanted to explore. I don't know what you think, Scott, but what is forgiveness, really? I I had not thought about it in, in depth until I read this book. I mean, I thought I knew what forgiveness entailed, and then I was wrong. Exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. And me, too. I, as I started to think about it, and with him asking her to forgive him, I started to wonder, well, what does it feel like? And do you ever really forgive someone, or do you just kind of move on? And there's one night where she thinks she has forgiven him and she feels this warm rush go through her body, but she doesn't tell him. She says, I'll tell him in the morning. And then in the morning she wakes up and she's not sure she forgives him anymore. And I think that kind of mercurial quality of forgiveness, to me, I think that's really honest. I think forgiveness is hard. And I think many of us turn to faith and friends, therapists, whatever, to help guide us to a more solid feeling of forgiveness. As you say in the uh, in the afterward, 2020 was a tough year for your family, wasn't it? It was a difficult year. My husband lost his job. We went on unemployment and then I got sick. I had a very intense illness called an autoimmune storm that started with shingles in my eye and then I got my immune system attacked, my thyroid and then my pancreas. And by January, I was diagnosed with autoimmune type one diabetes. So I took about a three month break from writing this book. But if anything, it made me wanna write it more. The characters of Pete and Alice and their world became a refuge for me too from what was going on. In what ways do you think the novel's different because you uh, you wrote it at this point, contending with so much? I wonder if it opened you up to understanding the characters in a different way. I think you're right. I think it made me search for empathy, and it made me stop judging people and just want to know what their story was. Not that I wasn't like that before. I was, of course. But I wanted to know what was beyond the fancier car with the New Jersey plate. I wanted to know what people needed and wanted, 
what they were struggling with. And I really wanted to write a bracingly honest book about marriage and being a Gen X woman and kids and daughters. And I wanted to write about girls and mothers and dads and everything else I could think of. Your novel more or less ends with a question. Yeah. Now, don't tell us the answer, but can you tell us, do you know the answer? No. I'm not sure I do. I might have to write some more to figure it out. Yeah. Well, that's what makes it dangle so artfully at the end, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that seemed like the natural place to end it. I just felt like leaving us with a question mark about what Alice is going to do next was where it needed to stay. And now... I also need to think about what happens next. I've had people who read advanced copies write me entire pages about what they think happens next <laughs> and email them to me, mm. and I love that. Fan fiction, I guess. Yeah. Well, no, it's friends even saying, well, here's what I think happens next, and I love it that people are telling me. It's cool. Caitlin Shetterly's new novel, Pete and Alice in Maine. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Japan wants to release more than a million tons of treated nuclear wastewater into the ocean over the next several decades. The International Atomic Energy Agency says that's okay. The water comes from the Fukushima power plant damaged by an earthquake and tsunami 12 years ago. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday, a marine biologist talks about concerns with this plan. You can listen to that conversation on your radio or by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. Grammy award-winning choir, The Crossing, is performing a new piece, a nine-part song cycle called Farming. But this music is not a series of bucolic rhapsodies to rural life. For two pennies, you might pay someone tell you whether there's one detail page for each product. I would have you that I'm very sensible. Farming was composed by the two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist Ted Hearn with words by Jeff Bezos and William Penn, among others. The piece debuted last month on a farm in rural Pennsylvania. Nate Chenin the director of editorial content at member station WRTI was there and joins us now from Philadelphia. Nate, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Scott. What was it like, modern choral music on a farm? In a word, um, it was wild. You know, The Crossing is, uh, it's really well known for working in this modern contemporary style, but Ted Hearn turned that dial all the way up. You know, this music is twitchy, it's elusive, it's you know, synthetic and surrealistic. It delivers what I really can only describe as a total sensory overload. As you mentioned, you know, this libretto pulls from Jeff Bezos and William Penn, but also things like the Uber Eats social media feed and the FAQ page for a startup called Farmer's Fridge. And um, the director, Ashley Tata, really leaned into the otherworldly aspects in the production, you know, the singers wore 
uh, neon costumes and there was choreography and lighting cues. It all played up an idea of a kind of complex machine gone haywire. Haywire as opposed to hay bales. Exactly. What was the idea of making a piece about farming? So, if I may, garish. Yeah, well, I think for most of us, the word farming calls up this rustic idea, right? And and the Crossing commissioned it to premiere on a farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, that fits that idyllic vision really to a T. But uh, modern farming and agribusiness, that's a much more complicated sort of reality. And that's before we even begin to factor in all of the networks and the interventions that go into our modern food system, all the way up to the DoorDash guy who brings your order to the door. So these are some of the considerations that Ted Hearn told me he wanted to introduce in this work while taking advantage of a really tactile sense of place. As we mentioned, uh, some of the words come from letters written by William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, Quaker leader. How does he fit into the libretto in a piece about farming? Well, one important step along the path to, you know, the Commonwealth was Penn's treaty, right? An agreement with the Lenape people that promised a perpetual peace. And, you know, on the one hand, that's a really admirable compromise. There's no bloodshed, right? But there's also a paternalistic impulse in that. And it, it led historically to William Penn's sons negotiating the walking purchase, which, you know, it, it appropriated 1.2 million acres of land from the Lenape. So uh, one of the sources that Hearn uses in his libretto is a letter from William Penn to a friend in which uh, he says, my country was confirmed to me, uh, making reference to, you know, the, the British rulers, and also my God has given it to me. So there's a kind of entitlement there. And, you know, William Penn has a pretty good reputation in Pennsylvania and beyond as a Quaker, as a pacifist. But uh, the way Hearn put it to me when we talked was, there is no good colonist. And so in the piece, the part of William Penn is assigned to a soloist whose voice gets processed through this aggressively dystopian sort of digital filter. Uh, you know, very, very weird. Let me ask you about uh, another major character, and it's Jeff Bezos. How do we go from the 17th century to the inventor, the patriarch, if you please, of online shopping? Right. These are the two founding fathers of the piece, so to speak. Ted Hearn's research led him to the work of a former farm worker and author and crop scientist named Sarah Tabor. And she got him thinking about the origins of the word farming, which was actually all about the leasing of land, not the cultivation of crops. Here's how Ted put it. This piece really should be about that definition of the word, and that it would, of course, have resonance on an actual farm, what we know as a, as a farm now, but that the, you know, the sort of settler colonialist mentality of someone like William Penn has a lot of resonances with titans of big business and billionaires who run, like, giant tech corporations, for instance, right now. So on opening night, um, it was interesting. Inclement weather forced the performance from a field into a small airplane hangar on the farm, which was an interesting resonance because 
that space actually resembled a warehouse or a fulfillment center, you know? So the choir in their neon was in this space. And the singer playing Jeff Bezos made an entrance by rolling up in a John Deere buggy and singing this really hilarious text that was pulled from one of his keynote addresses saying, I get asked this all the time, what does this have to do with selling books? And the answer, I say, first of all, we also sell groceries. I say, first of all, we also sell groceries. I can imagine leaving the theater or the, um, the fulfillment center singing that tune. Um, <laughs> what does the composer, Ted Hearn, and The Crossing hope might come of this collaboration? You know, we're talking about an avant-garde new music piece for electric guitar, synthesizer, and 24 voices. You know, not exactly uh, pop music, right? So what kind of change can they enact with this music? Well, you can only fight your battle with the tools at your disposal, right? So maybe not plowshares into swords, maybe plowshares into experimental choral pieces. But, you know, if even one person in the audience thinks a little differently about our food system, as a result of farming, I think the creators would call that a success. The Crossing will be at Caramore uh, outside New York for a free concert tomorrow afternoon. And then? After Bucks County, they went into the studio and recorded this piece for an album. And I'm told that it'll be out next spring. Hey, Chinen, uh, Director of Editorial Content at WRTI. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. So wise, so I am hopeful, so I am hopeful. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. In just a few minutes, you'll hear about Secretary of State Antony Blinken's recent Caribbean trip and the state of U.S. Caribbean relations. Join us at City Space later this month for an evening of jazz and blues with Ali McGurk, the singer headlines City Space's next Sound On Musical Music Festival. That's Thursday, July 27th. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. On this week's Wait, Wait, I ask Mariska Hargitay, Captain Olivia Benson on Law & Order SVU, if her role carries over into her real life. Are you a good detective? Are you, like, good at finding your husband's lost phone, for example? Well, I found his first two mistresses. Ooh. <laughs> 
I'm Peter Sagal. You can find us just by staying tuned to this station. Catch us for this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the U.S. destroys its last chemical weapons 27 years after it agreed to. What took so long? Is the world safer? Then a prison in Peru to hold ex-presidents convicted of corruption. Rosa Maria Palacios, a Peruvian lawyer, says... In Latin America, people envious. Many people abroad said, at least you get them in jail. Also, baseball's all-star break. Has there ever been a bigger all-star than Shohei Otani? And Jake Tapper of CNN with a new novel, All the Demons Here, ripped from blaring headlines of the 70s, Evil Knievel, Son of Sam, Elvis, Watergate, and moderate Republicans. First, our newscast at Saturday, July 8, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden says it was a difficult decision but decided the U.S. should send cluster munitions to Ukraine because it's running out of ammunition in its war against Russia. More than 100 nations banned them because they release smaller bomblets that can kill indiscriminately over a wide area. The Biden administration says Ukraine has promised to use the bombs carefully. The U.S. has destroyed the last of its declared chemical weapons stockpile at a military installation in Kentucky yesterday. Stu Johnson of member station WEKU reports. In the 1980s, the Army proposed incinerating more than 500 tons of chemical weapons stored at the Bluegrass Army Depot. A significant public outcry followed, and the eventual disposal method used was neutralization, which dilutes the deadly agents. Berea, Kentucky Mayor Bruce Fraley grew up in the area, knowing lethal munitions were just a few miles away. It's almost like it became a way of life. You, you knew it was there, we were kind of stuck with it, and you learned to live with it. Demilitarization officials and thousands of workers beat the international chemical weapons eradication deadline by a few months. Now the focus will be on disposing of residual agent and drained warheads, decontaminating the site and retaining jobs. For NPR News, I'm Stu Johnson in Richmond, Kentucky. Police in Fort Worth, Texas say they've arrested two suspects in Monday's mass shooting. Three people were killed and eight others were wounded. Police Chief Neil Noak says too many young people are resorting to guns to resolve disputes. It doesn't matter how minor an altercation may be. Someone pulls out a gun, and then maybe someone else pulls out a gun, and it ends in death and tragedy. The investigation continues. Noak says more arrests are possible. In El Paso, Texas, a 24-year-old man has been sentenced to serve 90 life sentences in federal prison for the 2019 mass shooting at a Walmart that targeted Hispanic shoppers, 23 people died. Stocks lost ground this past week as investors worried about rising interest rates. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell nearly 2 percent. All the major stock indexes were down for the week. The Nasdaq fell 9 tenths of a percent, while the S&P 500 index lost nearly 1.2 percent. 
Investors are worried that the Federal Reserve will have to keep raising interest rates in order to curb inflation. Friday's jobs report reinforced that thinking. While job growth slowed in June, the overall labor market remains tight. The unemployment rate dipped to just 3.6 percent last month, while annual wage growth held steady at 4.4 percent. Annual wage gains in May outpaced inflation, so workers saw a real increase in their buying power. New cost of living numbers out this coming week will show whether that trend continued into June. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A 24-year-old Worcester man was taken into custody late last night after a 13-hour standoff with police. He allegedly shot and wounded two family members and barricaded himself in a Worcester home. Police allege he opened fire on officers during the standoff. The conflict resolved peacefully when he surrendered. His name has not yet been released. Officials have detected the first case of West Nile virus in a mosquito in Massachusetts this year. The State Department of Public Health says the sample was detected in a mosquito sample collected July 6th in Brookline. No human or animal cases of the disease have been found yet this year. West Nile symptoms can include fever and flu-like illness. Officials say to help ward off mosquito bites, you should apply insect repellent with DEET or oil of lemon eucalyptus. Worcester is bringing back weekend volunteer neighborhood cleanups. The city's clean team includes residents, city councilors, and privately owned businesses. Starting this morning, the clean team is sprucing up Worcester's fourth council district. Volunteers will collect trash, cut brush, and repaint fences. Worcester City Manager Eric Batista says they'll tackle all five of the city's districts over the next couple of months. We take pride in, in this city. We take pride in our neighborhoods. And we invite everybody to join us and celebrate this moment of beautification. Batista says it's been about four years since the clean team last hit Worcester streets. Lions Club members from around the world are marching through Boston's Back Bay this hour, carrying the flags of their home countries and wearing traditional garments. The Parade of Nations is part of the service organization's convention that runs through Tuesday. At Fenway Park last night, the Red Sox beat the A's 7-3. They play again this afternoon. The Revs play the Red Bulls in New York tonight. It's 74 degrees in Boston with some sunshine today and highs in the mid-80s. Overnight low around 70 degrees. A high around 80 tomorrow under mostly cloudy skies. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to the twin island nation of Trinidad and Tobago this week to meet with Caribbean leaders to talk about food and climate security and economic issues. It is a notable trip for anybody who pays close attention to the region, but especially for those who feel the U.S. may undervalue its relationships with countries in the Caribbean. We're joined now by Daniel Rundy. He's a vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mr. Rundy, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's great to be on. You have written that the U.S. needs to be more involved in the Caribbean. Does Secretary Blinken's visit signal that? 
I thought it was an important step. I know that President Biden has uh, met with many leaders of the Caribbean on the sidelines of the Summit of the Americas last year. Vice President Harris has been uh, taking a lead on some of these issues. As you know, her father is from Jamaica, so she's the first Caribbean-American vice president we've ever had. However, I think the region continues to be feel overlooked, and I think that there's increasing attention in the region from actors like China. And so as a result, I think we need to pay more attention to the region, not only because China is paying more attention, but because of the potential that the Caribbean offers. Well, help us understand that potential. You have a number of countries like the Bahamas with very high GMP per capita, whereas you have others that are very poor, some of the world's poorest, like Haiti. And they're largely peaceful democracies. There's been some challenges recently, but this is a region that its largest trading partner is the United States. And in some years, the Caribbean is collectively is our sixth largest trading partner. So we kind of undervalue how important it is to our shared future. We have a number of security bases in the Caribbean basin, a number of the countries of of the 30 or so Caribbean Basin countries recognize Taiwan as opposed to mainland China. And so it's um, a region that is often thought about in terms of tourism, and it's it's a very incomplete understanding. I mean, it's a region with some manufacturing and could have greater manufacturing capacity. It's a region with great potential in terms of nearshoring, which is a term we've talked a lot about since the pandemic, when people thought, well, maybe we ought to rethink where we're buying and sourcing things or where we have global supply chains. But I think we need to be thinking about what kind of offer we're making our friends in the Caribbean in terms of development, in terms of security, and in terms of trade. For all of the reasons that you mentioned, the Caribbean is also of interest to China, isn't it? It really is. I think one of the reasons is is that, you know, there's some Caribbean nations with significant natural resources. Sometimes there's a tension from China because some of the Caribbean nations recognize Taiwan. And so every time that a Caribbean nation switches from, say, uh, recognizing Taiwan to the mainland, it means that Taiwan has less and less diplomatic recognition. Huawei, the telecoms company, is the technology backbone of much of the Caribbean's telecom systems because it's unfortunately, it's a high quality price competitive technology offering that we haven't yet come up with an alternative. So in the digital space, sometimes in the infrastructure space, sometimes in the raw material space, and sometimes let's call it in the geopolitical diplomatic space, China has interests in the Caribbean. The good news is, is that fear of China is forcing the United States to pay more attention and to be a slightly better partner. And I think the region always feels overlooked and slighted, and it's true. Let me ask you um, about what I'll just refer to as the challenge of Haiti. Hunger levels, gang violence have soared there over the past few years. Uh, I gather Secretary Blinken called for a a multinational approach to try and help the country's uh, police deal with with the violence. What do you think the U.S. role should be? So up until now, no one has really stepped up to demonstrate leadership on this issue. 
There's been lots of calls for it, but there hasn't been anyone willing to step forward. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. Many of the what you might describe as the likely suspects who would lead something like this, the United States, France, Canada, and Brazil have not necessarily, I'm not going to call it deafening silence, but you didn't hear CARICOM, it's the grouping of Caribbean nations. You didn't hear the CARICOM nations say, oh, we are going to step forward and lead on this. I mean, Haiti has a long and complicated history with outside actors, including France, the United States, and, and the United Nations. So people of goodwill have said something must be done to help Haiti, and they are right. But with all this tumultuous history, no one has stepped forward. And I think, unfortunately, I think you're you're going to – I worry that no one's going to want to step forward because of all these bad experiences, if I can put it that way. Daniel Rundy is Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. Later today on All Things Considered, Trion Carmichael is studying to become a social worker. For one day, she took on the role of being someone just out of federal prison with few resources. Don't know whether or not I need to go get some food before I pass out or go get my paycheck. I didn't pay child support, I didn't pay rent. You can hear more about reentry simulations hosted by the Department of Justice and geared toward creating empathy for those leaving prison. Listen live on your radio or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. Prominent Russian journalist who has been vocal about human rights abuses in Chechnya was attacked on Tuesday. Elena Milishina was in Chechnya to attend the hearing of the mother of two Chechen dissidents. Her publication said the medical examination showed that she sustained a brain injury and fractures. The U.S. State Department said it was appalled by the beating. And we turn now to a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. Olga Sadovskaya. She is the vice chair of the Crew Against Torture. Thank you so much for being with us. Hello. Elena Milishina was, was traveling with a, a lawyer uh, to the hearing of a human rights activist. What, what do we know about what happened? They were in the same plane to Grozny, and they took one car because, well, they coincided in one plane. And about one half kilometer from the airport, they were stopped by three cars. They were attacked by a group of 12 people wearing masks and they were having guns, they were having knives, they were severely beaten. Yelena has, at the moment, she has brain concussion, she was constantly losing consciousness. Yelena's back is absolutely black. You uh, and Elena Milishina were awarded the Sakharov Prize in 2017. Why would she be a target of anything? Since for the last decade or even longer, she's unveiling human rights crimes that are committed by the local authorities in the region. Uh, she was covering in media gay purge that started in 2019. She was covering uh, how Chechen authorities were kidnapping and killing people because they think differently, because they look differently, because they try to speak out. 
Um, it was not the first attack against her. Unfortunately, she was beaten a couple of years ago before, but it wasn't that severe story. But this time, it really the people who have beaten them have crossed all red lines. Has there been any reaction that you have seen or heard from the Russian government? Yes, there was a very untypical reaction, actually, because the spokesperson of the president expressed his concern and said that there should be proper investigation. The head of the investigative committee in immediately opened a criminal case. And the members of the federal parliament actually have spoken out and said that it's incredible crime and it should be investigated. These kind of people have never spoken like this before on the similar crimes against journalists or human rights defenders. Yeah. This question is going to sound very naive, Ms. Sotovskaya, but I have to ask, how dangerous is it to be a journalist in, in Russia today? If you're a journalist that covers human rights violations or politics or elections or special military operation, as they call it in Russia, you're at a great risk. And I would say that 90% of the independent journalists who cover these kind of topics have already left Russia in order to remain able to cover these kind of violations. What should the Russian government do to make it easier for journalists to operate? Or is that the point, to not make it easy? Russian government is not willing that the truth is coming out. Otherwise, it will be, you know, supporting independent journalism. But Russian government is trying to create a closed jar of the country that no information about human rights violation or what is happening in the country is coming out. So they're not going to do anything because it's not in their interest. How, uh, how safe is it for you to speak with us? Any cooperation with the international partners, with foreign partners, could be dangerous. But if you try to do human rights work, you need to be ready for some kind of risk. Olga Sadovskaya is the vice chair of the crew against torture. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR. In Peru, so many ex-presidents have been accused of crimes that the country has designated a small prison specifically to house them. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday. You can count on WBUR wherever you may be. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. It's 77 degrees in Boston. Partly sunny skies today. Highs in the mid-80s. A low around 70 overnight. For your Sunday, mostly cloudy skies and a high about 80 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. President Biden is defending his decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine, saying it's running out of ammunition to fight the Russian invasion. 
cluster ammunitions open in the air and release scores of smaller bomblets. Unexploded rounds can later kill civilians. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte is submitting his resignation today. His government collapsed yesterday after failing to agree on a plan to reduce asylum seekers to the Netherlands. And it appears there's been no progress in efforts to avert a strike at United Parcel Service when a contract expires this month. Both the company and the union are accusing the other of breaking off negotiations. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The United States has destroyed the last of its stockpile of chemical weapons. In doing so, it fulfilled a promise made in 1997 when the Senate ratified the Chemical Weapons Convention, a treaty to wipe these weapons from the face of the earth. The convention requires other nations to follow our lead, to eliminate their arsenals of poison gas, and to give up developing, producing, and acquiring such weapons in the future. That, of course, President Bill Clinton, and as it developed, the U.S. did not stay in the lead. It ended up as the last nation to eliminate its chemical weapons stockpile. NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield joins us. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Why did it take so long? What happened? At the end of the Cold War, the U.S. had more than 30,000 tons of chemical weapons sitting in its stockpile. This was really nasty stuff like nerve agent, blister agent, and it was a nightmare to deal with. You had deadly chemicals, explosives sitting in bombs and artillery shells. They weren't designed to be taken apart. They were designed to be used, so you had to figure out how to do that. Then disposal proved tricky. The Army's practice was to incinerate these agents, but at some sites, locals resisted, fearing dangerous pollution, so entirely new techniques had to be developed. But that wasn't the whole story. David Koplow is a law professor at Georgetown University who's tracked these processes over the years, and he says the program was also plagued by underfunding and poor management. The leadership for the program changed repeatedly, and it was just never taken as seriously as it should have been. As a result, it dragged on for so long that the U.S. was actually in violation of the treaty for several years. But they finally did manage to get it done on Friday. What's been the overall effect of the treaty? You know, it's, it's been very effective in some ways and less effective in others. So these large national stockpiles have been eliminated, but um, there have been some other nations that continue to use chemical weapons, most notably Syria deployed chlorine and nerve agents in its civil war with some pretty terrible effects. Russia has also used chemicals for targeted assassination attempts, and North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un actually killed his half-brother with a nerve agent. But those are isolated cases. More broadly, vast quantities of these weapons have been disposed of by nations all over the world. 
I spoke to Kingston Reef. He's the Pentagon official who's overseen this destruction process. He says this is really something to celebrate. These are awful weapons, and the world is a safer and more secure place without them. Jeff, I, I wonder, because I think a lot of people in the world would not say that it feels like a more secure planet at this point. New weapons are being developed. There are new worries of nuclear war. Um, what can we learn, perhaps, from the Chemical Weapons Convention? I mean, I think the takeaway here is that arms control actually can work. I mean, the treaty has eliminated an entire class of really, really awful weapons from the battlefield. It's possible. It just takes political will. And I think that's sort of the lesson. You know, the generals uh, fight the wars, but politicians and ultimately citizens get to make the rules. And this is an important reminder that the world decides when a weapon is unacceptable and it can make a change. NPR's Jeff Brumfield, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. If Donald Trump were to be convicted for mishandling classified documents, he could become the first ever former U.S. president to go to prison. Elsewhere in the world, ex-leaders commonly face prosecution and incarceration. In fact, Peru has a special penitentiary for erstwhile presidents. As John Otis reports, it is full. The Barbadillo prison is located in a working-class neighborhood on the outskirts of Lima. It used to be a police academy, but so many of Peru's leaders have had trouble with the law that it was converted into a prison for ex-presidents. One of its three cells holds Alberto Fujimori. He became the first presidential inmate after he was convicted of human rights abuses, stemming from his time in office in the 1990s. In another cell sits Pedro Castillo, who was arrested in December after he tried to dissolve Congress and rule by decree. The newest inmate is Alejandro Toledo. That's Toledo speaking to a Lima judge overseeing his trial on corruption charges dating back to his presidency in the early 2000s. After the hearing, Toledo was transferred to the Barbadillo prison aboard a police helicopter, a spectacle broadcast live on Peruvian TV. A fourth former president, Ollanta Humala, also did time at Barbadillo for alleged money laundering. Peruvians are of two minds about what must surely be a world record for the most ex-leaders behind bars at one time. In Latin America, people envious. Many people abroad said, at least you get them in jail. That's Rosa Maria Palacios, a Peruvian lawyer and political commentator. While it's a good thing that the powerful are held to account, she says the presidential prison is a troubling symbol of Peru's endemic corruption and political instability. Indeed, so many presidents have resigned, been impeached, or tossed in jail that the current one, Dina Boluarte, is Peru's seventh president in the past six years. Entonces es completamente ambiguo. Antonio Zapata, a Peruvian historian, lays much of the blame on Peru's ambiguous 1993 constitution. It makes it easy for a president to close Congress, but it also makes it easy for Congress to impeach the president. Luchas a muerte entre los diversos poderes. So, it becomes a fight to the death between the different branches of power with no clear rules, Zapata says. One president on the losing end of this equation was Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, 
He was elected in 2016, but was forced out of office 19 months later by the opposition-controlled Congress. I was impeached for permanent moral incapacity, but nobody specified what the moral incapacity was. His ouster was related to a corruption scandal, but the allegations date back to when Kaczynski was Peru's finance minister two decades ago. I was ordered to go to prison without a trial. I spent three years under house arrest, and I'm still defending myself. Now, the important point, more than what happened to me, is what happened to Peru. Indeed, the ouster of Kuczynski sparked years of turmoil. His successor as president, Martin Viscata, was forced to resign, reinstated, then forced out again. A subsequent president served less than a week. Another lasted a single day. The end result has been political paralysis, making it harder for the country to deal with challenges like the COVID-19 pandemic, a surge in poverty, and rising inflation. Angelo Rios, an accountant on his lunch break in Lima, says so much instability has caused economic upheaval and business closures. It really hurts us, he says. Back at Barbadillo Prison, I meet a few diehard supporters at the front gate who are demanding freedom for Castillo, the ex-president who tried to seize dictatorial powers last December. There's a group of about a dozen protesters, and they've put up a Peruvian flag, except it's black and white instead of the official red and white colors. But it's not like Castillo and the other ex-presidents are in solitary confinement. Their cells are more like small apartments, and they receive lots of visitors. They even have outdoor terraces. In fact, this Peruvian TV report shows Castillo, who once donned the presidential sash, in a t-shirt and shorts, watering his garden and planting corn and sweet potatoes. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Lima, Peru. Boy, I've missed being able to say, and now it's time for sports. Major League Baseball All-Star break, and there is no star bigger in the firmament than Shohei Otani. Wimbledon, one week down, one to go. Howard Bryant of Better Lark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Listen, Major League Baseball's All-Star Game in Seattle on Tuesday marks the halfway point of the season. What should we know about the season so far? Now, the one thing we're going to do, Scott, that I really love today is we're actually going to talk about baseball and not talk about rule changes. It's yeah. It's been a great season of surprises. I think everyone was expecting the San Diego Padres to go out and beat everybody because they spent all that money. They've got four guys on the team with $300 million contracts, and they're one of the worst teams, one of the biggest disappointments yeah. in baseball, along with the New York Mets, who you have Buck Showalter, who won the Manager of the Year award, and now everyone's thinking he's going to be the first manager fired this year. But on the other hand, the Atlanta Braves are a great team. The Tampa Bay Rays are a great team. Yeah. The Arizona Diamondbacks and the Texas Rangers have completely surprised everybody. And the Baltimore Orioles are also yeah. very good second-place team. So there's a lot of good surprises going on here. And I think one of the things that I sort of enjoy about this, too, is the difficulties 
of the American League East. Every team is over 500. The people up here in Massachusetts are moaning about <laughs> the inconsistencies of the Red Sox. They're in last place, but they're over 500. Yeah. Everybody's good in the American League East. But the real story this year so far has been, of course, individually, Shoei Itani, team-wise, Atlanta, Tampa Bay. Let me ask you about Otani uh, uh, of the Anaheim Angels. Oh, my God. We have never <laughs> seen anything like this in sports. I mean, the best pitcher in the league and the best, uh, the best hitter in the league all at the same time, arguably the greatest of all time. Yeah, it's crazy. He's not just a guy who can pitch and who can hit a little bit. He is a cleanup hitter. He's the best hitter on his team. He's the best hitter in the in one of the best hitters in the league. He's a home run hitter. He's also a starting pitcher. He's not a reliever who comes in and pitches yeah. for a couple of innings. He's a starting pitcher as well. No one's ever seen this. People have compared him to Babe Ruth. He's not Babe Ruth. He's not Babe Ruth at all because when Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth started his career in 1914 as a pitcher with the Boston Red Sox, and then in 1919-1920, after he joins the Yankees in 1920, he becomes uh, a hitter. Yeah. But he never did both the way Otani is doing it. He's, he, he's an anomaly. He is completely idiosyncratic. And the sad thing about Shoei Otani is that he hasn't made the playoffs. Nobody really gets yeah. to see him. He's out on the West Coast. He's playing on a team that's second to the Dodgers on the, in a two-team market. And we've never seen anything like this, and we don't get to see him in any real uh, capacity on the big stage because his team keeps losing. Now they were having a great season this year, and now they lose Mike Trout with a wrist inj injury. He's going to be out eight weeks. And... Now they've lost four games in a row. But I'll tell you one thing about Otani. I remember there's, it, he's not taking people by surprise. When he first came up in 2018, I got a text from CC Sabathia, the great Yankees pitcher. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we had a sound dropout. Did you say you had a text from CC Sabathia? <laughs> I did. Hold on, I've got to check my, I've got to check my phone. Did CC text you today? I, um, not so far. He's been too busy texting you. But yes, well, go ahead. Yeah. Normally, he and I will talk about. Uh, oh, Marvel normally he and, and I will talk. Go ahead. So sorry. Demean me. Go ahead, Ari. the name drop. It's not on purpose. It's a, there's a purpose to this. Guy. All right. And the purpose says he calls me and he says he texts me and he says dude this guy is the greatest player of all time and i said of all time he goes yes he's the greatest baseball player who's ever lived and i said he just got here and this is 2018 he said listen this guy does things that we did yeah. in the eighth grade that we did in little league he's doing things at the major league level that we did when we were kids and you know what when you put it that way nobody else can say that yeah uh, oh, by the way, Mike Trout just texted me to say, and he's right. Uh, <laughs> Tell him to get better. Let, let, let's take 20 seconds. What are you looking, watching for a week two of Wimbledon? Well, unfortunately, uh, if you love drama, you're not getting it on the men's hand side because Novak Djokovic is the best. On the women's side, a Svantec Sabalenka final would be something to behold. All right. We'll look forward to that. Howard Bright of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Summertime, 
In the southeastern United States can bring long hot days, sweltering humidity, B.J. Lederman's theme music for our program, and in many places, backyards full of Juro spiders. From member station WGA in Athens, Georgia, Martin Matheny reports that in many ways, this prolific, harmless creature, the spiders, not B.J., is still a mystery to researchers. Two years ago, ecologist Andy Davis found himself compelled to become a Joro spider expert. So I'm not a spider biologist by trade, but because they're in my backyard by the thousands, I simply had to become one. Last month, Davis took me on a walk in the woods near the University of Georgia, looking for the spiders. They're small in early summer, about the size of a pea or a grain of rice. That makes them hard to see, but Davis says they're out here. And after some walking, we spot one. That's it right, that's it right there, that little guy. Oh, it's tiny. And there's another one right there. In a few months, these tiny grains will be huge, over an inch or more, and they'll be everywhere, just in time for Halloween. They have a yellow coloring with these sort of greenish-blue bands across their back. Laura Ney is an extension agent in Athens. She works with farmers and gardeners on all things outdoors, including Joro spiders. And they have large legs with banding, um, so they're pretty striking. They're actually, you know, an attractive spider. <laughs> Joro spiders first appeared in Georgia nearly 10 years ago, likely by hitching a ride on a shipping container from Southeast Asia. In 2019, when Joros started to pop up in large numbers in North Georgia, Nay got a lot of questions about them. What is this? We've never seen it before. This is a different looking spider. And of course, one of the first concerns is, is this dangerous? Joro spiders are completely harmless to humans, but as to their effect as an invasive species, the Joro jury is still out. There's no evidence that's been recorded so far that they're having a detrimental effect. But of course, I mean, in the grand ecological scheme of things, they've only been here for a really short period of time. But in that time, ecologist Andy Davis has already discovered a few things. For example, they're more comfortable than most spiders living among humans. They don't seem to be bothered by us. I've seen them on gas station pumps, street lamps. I've even seen uh, some on the top of street lights in the middle of a busy intersection downtown. I mean, that's actually crazy to me. They also weave very durable webs. The Juro webs are so strong that a bird can actually land on them stay there, and then fly off. Given how prolific Joro spiders are at reproducing, they're likely to expand across the country. For one, they travel well, hitching rides on cars and trucks, Davis says. I know one was spotted in Baltimore. Uh, there's been one in sort of West Virginia. I talked to a student who was here at UGA who accidentally transported one to Oklahoma. So Joro spiders may soon show up in a backyard near you if they aren't there already. For NPR News, I'm Martin Matheny in Athens, Georgia. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The president of the Boston City Council wants a review of employee parking procedures at City Hall. The Boston Herald reports that Ed Flynn is calling for the city to verify driver's licenses, registrations, and insurance policies for employees' cars parked in the garages near City Hall. Last week, city councilor Kendra Lara crashed a car into a Jamaica Plain home. Lara allegedly was driving with a revoked license. The Cape Cod National Seashore has landed on a list of the best camping sites in the U.S. Country Living Magazine ranks at number 13, lists highest ranking of any site in New England. The city of Quincy is hosting a watch party today to take in the scene in Chicago where the New England Free Jacks will take aim at their first Major League Rugby Championship. The Quincy event begins at noon in Kilroy Square. In other sports, the Red Sox play the A's this afternoon. Last night, the Sox won 7-3. Tonight, the Revs play the Red Bulls in New York. It's 77 degrees in Boston and highs in the mid-80s today with partly sunny skies. Tonight, the low will drop to about 70, and tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Sunday and a high around 80 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. If you think electronic dance music or EDM isn't for you, musician and singer Aluna has a tip for finding your vibe. Start with a two-step, then check in with your danceometer. Whatever makes that easier to get more energy into and to get more movement in your body naturally, that's your danceometer working. That conversation Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. A raft of wrongful death lawsuits has been brought against vendors of Kratom, an herbal supplement that can act like an opiate on the human body. It's sold at gas stations and vape shops and bars. And as Peter Hayden reports from Southern Florida, experts and officials disagree over just what it is and how it ought to be regulated. Kava Sutra is a dimly lit bar in Lantana, Florida, where there's no beer, only non-alcoholic botanical drinks. And with the patrons here this Friday night, there's one drink that's clearly winning out. Jumbo plastic cups filled with icy kratom tea. It relaxes you. I feel like being more social and open. I do feel like I'm more focused, I'm more on point. It completely took away my back pain. Ash Turner. Nico Wesley and Carly Palermo are among millions of Americans that regularly use Kratom, an herbal product derived from the dried leaves of a tree in the coffee family. It's native to Southeast Asia, where it's been used for centuries as a folk medicine. At low doses, users say it relieves pain, anxiety, and symptoms of opioid withdrawal. But at higher doses, 
It can produce a euphoric state like an opioid and has been linked to its own addiction, seizures, and death. The customers at Kavasutra tonight tell me they are not aware of anyone who has been harmed by Kratom. And Carly Palermo tells me that many of the people who come to the bar are in recovery from substance abuse. Do you think Kratom aids in that? 100%. But it hasn't helped everybody. When you lose your child, it isn't anything that you have ever prepared for in life. Nothing. I meet Cindy Ross at a South Florida marina with a fountain. In December 2021, her 30-year-old son Max was excited, about to start a new job as a sous chef. He went to the mall with a friend to get the right shoes he needed to work in the kitchen. A few hours later, Cindy got a call from her ex-husband. He said, who are you with? I said, I'm with my sisters. He said, I need to tell you that Max is dead. Max had collapsed while walking home. He'd had a few beers at the mall and, at some point, a significant amount of kratom, possibly as the concentrated extract. The medical examiner determined that the combination killed him. Cindy Ross and thousands of other Americans are calling for increased government regulation of kratom, especially labeling and guidance on how to use it safely. You know what? I, I believe them, that people are taking it and it helps with their pain. I believe it, that it's helping with their anxiety. Okay, what's the dosage and what do you advise them not to interact with? 39-year-old Crystal Talavera lived in the next town over. She was a nurse and a mother of four. According to a lawsuit, on Father's Day 2021, her fiancé woke to find her lying face down on the floor, unconscious. Lying beside her, a cup of hot coffee and an open packet of powder, a blank bag except for the words space dust scrawled in black marker. It was a concentrated kratom extract. She'd ordered it off the internet from a company in Idaho. The medical examiner determined acute kratom intoxication was the sole cause of Crystal Talavera's death. In May, a federal judge ordered the vendor to pay more than $4.6 million in damages to her family. Matt Weatherington is an attorney in Atlanta. He's not representing the Talavera family, but his firm is partnering on dozens of other similar wrongful death lawsuits that accuse vendors of selling a dangerous product without proper warnings and instructions. When you're selling a drug next to Skittles or energy drinks, you have no means of knowing that you're dealing with something that is exponentially more dangerous than anything else on the shelf. The Food and Drug Administration warns Americans not to use Kratom, saying it stimulates the same brain receptors as morphine and could be addictive. But the agency doesn't regulate the product or classify it as a drug, rather as a dietary supplement. That leaves consumers to guess at the makeup of the myriad powders, capsules, and concentrates flooding the market, and how to use them safely. The FDA declined to be interviewed for this story. The case in Florida was egregious. They had nothing on it. other. It's called space dust. It's the poster child for why regulations need to be put into effect. Matt Haddow is a lobbyist with the American Kratom Association. The group states it advocates for the rights of Americans to legally consume 
safe Kratom. According to the association, Kratom is a billion-dollar business in the U.S., with vendors importing more than 2,000 tons of the herb into the country every month. The group is asking for the government to come in and regulate its product, so long as they regulate it as a legal over-the-counter supplement, not a drug. The association is pushing states and the federal government to pass its own recommended legislation. It really brings to bear the question in the marketplace, you know, what is safe, what isn't safe. Dr. Christopher McCurdy is a medicinal chemist at the University of Florida. He's been studying Kratom for nearly 20 years, supported by millions in grant funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. He says the plant shows tremendous medicinal potential, interacting with novel combinations of brain receptors and systems in what he calls... A complex symphony orchestra. But a fresh leaf plucked and chewed by an Indonesian farmer is vastly different from the concentrated kratom extracts American companies are squeezing out. And, McCurdy says... There's at least one good reason why there's no usage guidance on those products. No one knows what it should be. There's just a ton more science that needs to be done. McCurdy acknowledges the need for oversight in what he calls a Wild West marketplace. Nearly a dozen states have passed legislation to regulate Kratom. Five states have banned the product. For NPR News, I'm Peter Hayden. Some of the names from the 1970s that roll by in Jake Tapper's new novel, All the Demons Are Here, may need a little explanation. D.B. Cooper, Wayne Hayes, Wilbur Mills, Anita Bryant, Son of Sam, the nitty-gritty dirt band Willard Scott, and moderate Republicans. But the author includes footnotes. Jake's new novel leads us through a story that also includes Evil Knievel, Elvis Presley, Woodward and Bernstein, ufologists, ufologists, cultists, U.S. Marines in Lebanon, and the rise of blaring, sensational headlines. Jake Tapper, who also anchors the lead on CNN, joins us in our studios. Thanks so much for being with us. It's great to be here, Scott. I listen to the show every week. It's an honor to be here, really. Thank you. We're honored to have you. What, what grips you about this period, the 70s? It was just insane. It was just a wild, <laughs> it was just a wild time. I mean, the truth of the matter is, this is my third novel, and the first one takes place in the 50s, the second in the 60s. I was going to skip the 70s because I remember them vaguely and they seemed really lame to me. What I remember from the 70s is gas lines and malaise um, and Elvis dying. But I was cautioned, no, 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 you're remembering them wrong because you were a kid. L look into them. And they were wild. The story revolves around a brother and sister, Ike and Lucy Martyr, son and daughter of U.S. Senator Charlie Martyr and Margaret Martyr, a prominent zoologist. Ike is a U.S. Marine war hero, but AWOL when we meet him. So 1977 is also an era where people really start to ask tough questions about the military expeditions that the Pentagon and the presidents uh, send our young men and women into. Um, 1977 is a period of, it's post-Watergate, it's post-Vietnam. People are realizing that their government and their Pentagon have been lying to them. And Ike is 
caught up in continued U.S. military adventurism. This is a fictitious military operation, but it goes wrong. And it was just a time when disillusionment, I think, was a big part of the culture. And Ike is a stand-in for the rest of us in that sense, that he just he can't believe the flippancy with which the Pentagon and politicians send, in his case, uh, him and his platoon of Marines into danger for a nonsense adventure. Lucy Martyr, his sister, is a reporter on the verge of a huge story. She goes to work for a rich and unscrupulous British media family. You, I mean, you don't have to dance around it. It's, 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 it's very, it's loosely but directly based on Rupert Murdoch, who obviously hails from Australia. But yeah, yeah I mean, some of the quotes that I give to the, the dad, uh, Max Lyon, uh, who was setting up his media empire in the United States with a tabloid in D.C., the Washington Sentinel. Some of the quotes that I give to him are directly from Rupert Murdoch uh, in biographies and uh, documentaries that I've that I've watched. And I, he is an incredibly important player, love him or hate him, and there's a lot to hate, but he's an incredibly important player on the world stage and certainly in the United States. And 1977 is when the New York Post starts really getting its footing this because is of a headless body and topless bar <laughs> with that era. So and I try to get in the head of Rupert Murdoch, AKA Max Lyon by trying to explain why there was this desire and, and need really for tabloids, which was, there's a quote in the book um, that is directly from Murdoch, but I give it to Max Lyon, which is something like, I don't know any industry that proceeds to give the consumers what they do not want. Yeah. And that was and th- that was often said of, of yeah. Murdoch, that he had revitalized newspapers. He'd made yeah. them popular again. But then the problem is when you chase the headlines and you use fear and, and rage instead of uh, other emotions to sell papers, and then you end up with, you know, a few decades later, the Dominion lawsuit and $787.5 million settlement, et cetera. What traces of the 70s do you see today? A lot. I mean, first of all, obviously, the, the rise of, of tabloid journalism which you know people might call clickbait today uh, when they're referring to the same kind of idea of you're just trying to get eyes, you're not trying to inform. It wasn't invented in 1977, but it certainly rose in 1977. And that's one of the themes of the book with uh, what Lucy has to write. She's writing about a serial killer in D.C., the Lyon family sees what's going on with Son of Sam in New York, and they want to replicate that. Yeah, in they, want, they want their own serial killer. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and they have one. Uh, and then um, I think a lot of the anger in politics has been with us for certainly decades, if not centuries. But the mistrust of government, I think, really took root in the 70s, post-Watergate, post-Vietnam. Um, uh, and I don't think it's ever let up. I've got to ask you one CNN question. Of course. If Donald Trump called up CNN mm-hmm. in the middle of your show mm-hmm. and said, I've got something to say, I've got news to make, would you put him on? Oh, that's such a tough question. I mean, I, I'd want to, I mean, that's a tough decision to make on the fly. I mean, I think we'd want to know, well, what is it <laughs> before we put you on air? I'm very reluctant to cover a campaign event live. I just think, like, no matter who the candidate is, just because I don't know what value that is. Uh, for viewers. Um, but would I take a live interview from any presidential candidate who stands a chance and is a credible candidate? I mean, my knee-jerk response is yes, um, with obviously reserving the right to cut him off. But I do think with somebody like Donald Trump, who is 
I mean, I don't, I don't think this is an opinion. I think like he has been proven to be reckless with his words to the degree that there has been violence committed based on things he has said, lies he has told. I think you have to think about taking him live. I'm not saying you do, you do or you don't, but I think you have to think about it because he is so reckless with his words. Lucy Martyr, your reporter character, becomes part of what I'll call a, a mistake that has consequences. Yeah. Do we worry enough about that in journalism? Do we worry about that enough? I think that we have corrected a lot since after 9-11. There was a lot of inaccurate reporting about this individual was seen doing this, that individual was seen doing that. And then after the Iraq war, when the media was not skeptical enough of the allegations and charges being made by the Bush government, um, I think we have corrected a lot. It's still not enough. You still see it. But I remember after the Boston Marathon bombing, there were a lot of sleuths online. And I saw very little of that ending up in, in mainstream media, by which I even include you know, most newspapers, most TV shows. But there was some very irresponsible stuff. Pictures of people that were not related to the Boston Marathon bombing. If I, re- if I recall correctly, the New York Post might have posted a picture on its cover, right? Yeah, I think so. Of two individuals that were not, uh, they had backpacks and they were young men and they were not white, but they were not responsible. They had nothing to do with it. And that ended up being another lawsuit that the Murdochs had to settle. The uh, These two individuals were just innocent residents of Massachusetts. You know, so a platform and a voice is a very powerful thing and it can be really used to do damage. And we see that all the time exploited in by bad actors on social media. And we in the quote unquote mainstream media, I mean, we we really have to be responsible about that sort of thing. I think most people are, but I think there is an element that is not. And I think it lives today. I mean, what you're describing that Lucy experiences in the book is something that we, we do see today. When, when people are demonized on uh, far right media or far left, I suppose, too, but it seems to be a bigger problem with the far right right now. When people are demonized in far right media, that, that has consequences. Jake Tapper of CNN, his new novel, All the Demons Here. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. It's an honor as always. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Join the Radio Boston team Thursday, July 20th at City Space for an evening with Boston chefs, 
showing off their best grilling skills in a live cooking competition. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 77 degrees in Boston with partly sunny skies today and highs in the mid-80s. Tonight, the low will drop to about 70 degrees. A mostly cloudy Sunday, tomorrow's high around 80 degrees. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.